Hello and welcome to Power of the Pitch, a special podcast of the United Nations Office of Counterterrorism. My name is Dave Brundle, and I'm your host for this series, which has been designed and produced by the International Hub on Behavioural Insights to Counterterrorism, inspired by the experience and reflecting the work of the multi-year global programme on security of major sporting events and the promotion of sport and its values as a tool to prevent violent extremism that the UN Office of Counterterrorism delivers in partnership with the UN Interregional Crime and Justice Research Institute, the UN Alliance of Civilization, and the International Center for Sports Security. For this series, we will examine how behavioral insights are being applied to sports and when addressing violent extremism factors that may conduce to terrorism. We will introduce you to programs aiming to prevent violent extremism through sports and its values and share the personal stories from world-renowned athletes and advocates of female empowerment and inclusivity. We will discuss the powerful role of sports diplomacy and take a close look at the innovative policies and practices being used by governments and organisations to ensure that sport remains a safe pastime and profession for future generations. In this exclusive series, we will be joined by behavioural and violent extremism experts, as well as by sports professionals, who will talk about their experiences and share their knowledge. Today, we'll be speaking to Dr. Simon Rofe, who is a Senior Research Fellow and Assistant Program Director for the Master's Leadership in Sports at the Institute for Sport Humanities and Associate Professor in International Politics at the University of Leeds. Simon is joining Power of the Pitch today to speak to us about sport diplomacy, the role athletes and supporters play in representing their countries, and how sporting events can be used for diplomacy. Leading the conversation is Ken Reedy, who is the Research and Best Practices Lead at the BI Hub in Doha. So Simon Rolfe, welcome to the Power of the Pitch. It's great to have you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. You've pioneered the field of sports diplomacy. And if I'm not mistaken, you teach the only course on sports diplomacy at the School of Oriental and African Studies. Could you start us off by giving us a primer on this field? What is sports diplomacy? Sport diplomacy really is the sort of explanatory overlay to the network of evolving networks within the world of sport and diplomacy. It's shedding a a new light on something that's been happening over many millennia in many regards, but it's put into stark relief uh, over the course of the last 150 years and particularly in the last decade when the attentions of scholars and practitioners have come together to provide a real insight into what sport diplomacy can offer to practitioners and to the broader population. Okay, okay. Could you give us an example of sports diplomacy in practice so we can get to to grips with it? Sport diplomacy can make a difference through developing sport for development style projects, whether that's organisations like Tackle Africa addressing um, HIV in uh, Saharan Africa through the use of football, or on a much grander scale through Uh, elements of what organisations like FIFA or the IOC do through programmes to engage communities. Sport diplomacy really brings together different communities. It's about bringing opportunities for conversations that wouldn't happen otherwise. And in that sense, that can happen right from the grassroots and the development issues all the way through to some of the very 
high power conversations that take place at the contemporary world's summits, which are often sporting occasions such as World Cup finals or IOC uh, Olympic uh, and Paralympic summer and winter games. Would you say that it's it's almost like a, a great excuse to have di- diplomatic conversations? Is that how you'd frame it? Uh, excuses, perhaps. I think they could the, the intentionality can mm-hmm. be really important here. So I think that you can help construct moments when sports diplomacy can be seen. And I'd point to the example of the 2018 Pyeongchang Winter Olympics, which saw North Korean and South Korean representatives both in the diplomatic sense, in the pure diplomatic sense, and in the sporting sense, come together in a way that they hadn't been able to in their recent history. And that that agreement was not brokered by other formal diplomats. It wasn't President Xi in China or President Trump, as was in, in the United States, but it was brokered by the IOC, Thomas Bach. And it was an example of Olympic diplomacy, if you like, rather mm. than diplomacy coming from a state-based organisation. So in that sense, the, the opportunity arose, but sport gave the opportunity and sport diplomacy was integral to providing that moment. I'd imagine also that uh, sports is a means for member states or countries to promote soft power. How would you agree with that or would you not agree with that? Or, or am I totally off, off base there? No, no, okay. I think there's there's plenty to be said about the relationship between sport and soft power. And certainly sport has that reputation almost now of being a soft power tool. Equally, there's soft power and, and having worked with Joseph Nye in, in the early 2000s provides a, you know, has to have a hard power edge to it to use yeah. the bike. And indeed, in, in the further work he's done on sort of smart power. And I think that the, the sensitive and nuanced use of soft power in relation to sport is very much you know, related to that idea of, of smart power, being able to conceptualize how and when to use it so that soft power or sport as part of that soft power um, provision can make some important contributions to national entities. Soft power is not just wielded by nation states. It's wielded by organizations yeah. such as those major international sporting federations and to a much you know more localized extent as well in sort of people-people relations. And that makes a difference to how sport can be a contact point, a reason for a conversation, a means of starting a conversation about something perhaps less controversial than some of the issues that bedevil our world. So in, in terms of um, sports diplomacy, what would you characterize as the coal face of sports diplomacy? What is the, what is the very front end there? Well, I think a lot of people would think of the coal face of sport diplomacy being the sort of opening ceremony of a World Cup or mm-hmm. a, a particularly a men's world cup but the olympic games in like and that certainly is that is that moment of summitry and it's about meeting on the side of a, a a space and agreeing the rules of the game now the rules of the game might be set down by fifa but when you know six-year-olds in a playground start kicking a ball around they don't like to switzerland to find out what the rules are each time they don't ask no. permission but they establish a code, a sort of protocol of, you know, the the goals might be the tree and the edge of the building, the, yeah. you know, the, the edges of the pitch are defined by whatever the playground or the space is. And these kinds of negotiations are undertaken without necessarily a common language, without anything other than an interest in the sport. And because you're part of that dialogue around, well, we're going to play until it gets dark or until the yeah. bell goes, all of those kinds of things gives you the opportunity to have other conversations. And and as I said, at its base, sport diplomacy is about having conversations that wouldn't happen otherwise. As far as I would imagine, then, if you you begin a conversation on agreeing the rules and the timings and whatever, that would facilitate potentially further conversations 
uh, which hopefully you would also at least come to some agreement on based on previous agreements, even if they're not related. Absolutely. And, and sometimes that can be you know, too much of a stretch in the example of mm. Chang, you know, getting people to agree for a combined ice hockey team is a lot different from getting people to demilitarize or, you know, work yeah. with the demilitarization zone. But there are, there are elements that can work towards this. You know, one of the elements of, you know, an organization called Football for Peace talks about how they use peace matches between previously, you know, warring parties to yeah. bring each side to the table because they can put some things aside, you know, even during moments of high tension and conflict in the international system. There are still, to a point, rules and conversations that happen. Even when you're you know, potentially at war with a country, you're still in a process of negotiation and diplomacy. You're still talking with your enemy. And that can be a very hard thing to do. And, and politicians especially find it difficult to explain that nuance. But we know that it can happen. And we know that conflicts are resolved when people start talking to each other and meaningfully across a number of issues. So maybe it is getting people in the same place at the same time because there's that sports uh, event that brings people together. Maybe it's talking to the issues that they couldn't talk to in a formal diplomatic setting. You know, an ambassador arriving at an embassy or a foreign minister is a significant diplomatic event. Two individuals arriving at a sporting occasion there in the yeah. you know, executive rooms of a stadia, conversations can take place, allows things to move forward. Now, it doesn't always happen. It doesn't happen overnight. And it's not an immediate sort of silver bullet solution. Sport diplomacy yeah. provides both opportunities in terms of space and in terms of timing. And one of the key features of sport is that you know there's going to be another fixture. You know that the next week you'll meet again or in four years' time. Yeah. And because of that, you can actually orientate and, and, and work towards it. So you've got it in, in what um, diplomatists call the pre-negotiation. You're already at that stage because... You've agreed yeah. that you will agree to have a fixture. You've agreed that you will meet at three o'clock on you know, December the 10th to play this football match so that you can arrange things around that. And because of those kinds of understandings, it gives rise to the opportunity for further understanding, as you say. Do you know of any instances where maybe countries said, look, we're going to play a game, let's say a football game, for the specific purposes of diplomacy? I mean, there are instances, and in, in, in the you know the literature is full of them to a point. But you know, I might choose another sport other than football. So the, mm -hmm. the relationship between Iran and the United States is you know a very tense one. Yeah. They have no formal diplomatic relations, yeah. but they both have a very common interest in wrestling. Yeah, and so they have arranged on both behalves wrestling matches, oh. um, which take U.S. athletes and, and Iranian athletes to the same place at the same time to undertake that kind of uh, engagement. Now, the extent to which that shapes the Iran nuclear deal, which has high-level engagement from a number of other yeah. countries, the two, and multinational organisations such as the European Union, that might be a stretch. But the opportunity to have those conversations, the opportunity to move things forward, equally could point to you know, the relationship, the often tense relationship between India and Pakistan. But they both have a common love of cricket. They have... Uh, cricket diplomacy played out mm -hmm. where Pakistan's leaders and India's leaders can be in the same place at the same time. Now, again, that carries a certain amount of risk in the United Kingdom as a result of some of those matches. You can have diasporas in the yeah. city of Leicester in recent months playing out some of the tensions that have uh, incurred yeah. in a relationship that's actually quite stable on the ground in Kashmir to a yeah. point and yeah. between uh, Islamabad and, and, and India. but actually some of these proxies or pockets of activity 
reveal and indeed are important to reveal the, the, the texture and the nuance and the difficulties that sport diplomacy can throw up. And one shouldn't forget the, the football war uh, that came about because of uh, a World Cup qualifier between Honduras and El Salvador for the 1970 World Cup, where, you know, armed conflict was undertaken as a result of this. Um, no, really? So there's a little more to it and we could, you know, if we had the time. But, you know, the, these are, you know, sport is not a panacea. Yeah. It can add to the, the the tension in certain instances because it produces iconic moments. It produces reasons for people's passions to get yeah. uh, engaged. But that, that's one of its, you know, um, qualities also. And so this is where, you know, skilled diplomats and skilled understandings in the framework in which these things can take place, that's where you can make, as it were, the, the sport diplomacy magic happen. So on that on that conflict between Honduras and El Salvador, I'll just I'll just pitch in here. And um, George Orwell famously said that uh, sports is war minus the shooting. And um, it, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. Like, what are the risks of sports diplomacy? Well, if you continue with Orwell's quote from his, uh, his article on the sporting spirit, then you know he really emphasizes the, the importance of saving face. And uh-huh. one of the things about you know, diplomacy is that you need to be able to have the, the next conversation. What uh, Cardinal Richelieu said about negotiation continuelle, you need to continue the negotiation so you have the next fixture. One of the things about sport, though, is it can often produce a very binary result. There are winners mm. and there are losers. Yeah. And in an environment where you have winners and losers, it's very difficult to save face because the score tells you yeah. someone yeah. won and someone lost. Yeah. So being able to um, walk away from a sporting occasion with having saved face to have played the game well, but you know maybe the result didn't go your way. Today. Yeah. Very important functions, and you know sport is it's sort of it's inherent quality of the unpredictability, na- unpredictable nature of its um, outcome means that you have to be able to deal with both. You know, uh, in Kipling's words, you know, defeat and, and victory in the same breath. We know that. Um... Let's say non-state uh, armed groups when they move into a certain area, they they have to make um, let's say friendships or uh, build networks with the local populace. Are there any instances, let's say, of terrorist or non-state armed groups actually using sports as a means to um, get in with a community? There's ongoing research in in this regard, and, and in areas of um, Pakistan and Afghanistan, mm-hmm. the way that see the development of certain sports particularly cricket yeah. has been hijacked by various um, extremist oh. groups over the um over the year the research on this is very much you know ongoing and it'd be a fascinating project to be able to to, to undertake in greater depth so we're we're based here in doha qatar um are you able to speak about how sports play into qatar's 2030 plans and that really comes down to uh, uh transforming qatar into an advanced society capable of achieving sustainable development ideally by 2030 are you able to talk about how how sports play into that within qatar's vision Qatar, obviously you know it's been a great deal of time and effort uh, and no little money on hosting the men's fifa world cup uh, in 2022 but it's also got a longer, far longer heritage of hosting other events. And ever since its independence in 1971, has sought to be a soft power player. Yeah. It has invested in its public diplomacy and invested in its um, you know, Qatari diplomacy. Mm-hmm. Qatar has made an effort in this regard that other countries haven't, simply. Yeah. They have you know, designated an international, uh, you know, a national day of sport 
And it's important to recognise that the investment they put in, a national sport policy on everyone's behalf, you know, is something certainly I would advocate for. Um, but yeah, the, the, you know, the Qatari nation have, you know, clearly um, you know, got on board with that. And it's interesting to see how they they seek to play it out. I mean, certainly, you know, my experience directly on the ground in in Doha is there's a there's a you know fine amount of sporting facilities. Um. So let me ask you a broader question. Um. Are the opportunities uh, of sports diplomacy limited by the fact that most major sporting bodies are located in Switzerland, and they're headed by elderly white men? Yep. Yeah, that's a clear yes. Uh, I think you know, the, 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 you know, you can't just you know, diversity among sports leadership yeah. is, and whether that that's at an international level and yeah. a national level, it, I think there are you know significant moves being made. Some of mm-hmm. them are led by uh, you know examples, uh, you know, so see it, be it, you know, yeah. who Fatima Sator is the uh, you know very prominent position within FIFA. Um, but it's certainly something that we, you know, I would like to see uh, addressed. And, you know, certainly sport diplomacy has an element of addressing equality, diversity and inclusion, making sure that, uh, you know, people of different uh, races, ages, agendas are um, prominent and are given the opportunity to undertake leadership roles. But I think it's also about participation. And this goes back to the grassroots nature. It's making sure that sport is available to young women and girls, particularly. Mm-hmm to people without necessarily huge amounts of financial resources. Many sports are expensive to play. You yeah. know, you need a pair of, you need a tennis racket to play tennis. You need skis to go skiing. Yeah. You know, these are things that are not available to large swathes of the population. Simon, do you have any parting thoughts? Is there anything you would like our listeners to know that we haven't touched upon? Well, I think one of the, the main points about sport diplomacy is thinking about it in the round, in the holistic sense that, not only having the conversations that might happen at a you know significant sporting event taking place, but the conversations you might have at the bus stop, you know, uh, at lunch or the canteen. The opportunity to say, "Did you see that sporting moment?" provides a connection. Yeah, and, and that speaks to the sort of very fundamental qualities of diplomacy about communication, representation, and negotiation. And sport is a facilitator of that because it allows for conversations. It allows for those touch points in communication between disparate people, between people who you can share an experience with without knowing them, without yeah. being in the same place at the same time. But I think at the right point, at the right time, sport diplomacy offers unique solutions to the world's problem. It's certainly a fantastic foundation, which is relatively easy to do. And then if you can build upon that, it should absolutely be promoted. Absolutely. It's it's an opportunity there and, and it's been underutilized in practitioner terms. And therefore, the you know the opportunity is ripe for individuals, organisations at you know regional, local, national, international level to take this take this up and 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 make the connections between some of the issues, for example, that you're dealing with in anti-terrorism and the opportunities that sport diplomacy provides. As you were talking about um, Iran and the USA with their wrestling, they're actually going to play each other during the World Cup. They are, and I and I wonder if there'll be any kind of um, venue there for for these conversations to to take place between those two uh, countries. 
Well, I think the, the, that's a very interesting example because there's precedence here. In 1998 in France, in the World Cup, in Iran played the United States. Um, and the Iranian players presented the US players with a whole series of gifts, big bouquets of flowers. Oh. And, and it put the US players a little bit on the back foot because they had not prepared yeah. for the diplomatic occasion incumbent on that and this is the point about the dual or at least dual identities is they were also diplomats because they were wearing something with a usa badge on it they were representing their country overseas as quasi ambassadors yeah now undertaking that role you know they were more concerned in focusing on the match winning the match and progressing in the tournament the iranian players had prepared to share the gifts with their american counterparts the absence of American gifts back into, as it were, the Iranian players says a good deal about the customs of gift giving and diplomacy in those two different uh, approaches. So the opening of that game will be absolutely fascinating in Doha in a couple of weeks' time. And I, it's definitely on my calendar. One one final point. Um, you said that the players are quasi-ambassadors, and I, I totally agree. But I suppose the fans are as well. Indeed, because we're all, you know, representing something at that point. You know, the yeah. the collective body that you you perform. You're, there's a performative role in being a fan, particularly if you're traveling into a, a situation. So the thousands of fans who will arrive in Doha over the next month, yeah. they are, you know, ambassadors of sorts. Yeah. But they will carry with them a whole set of, you know, experiences. Simon Rolf, thank you so much. It was it was a pleasure having you. No worries, no worries at all. Pleasure. This podcast series, Power of the Pitch, is produced by the United Nations Office of Counterterrorism. The information and opinions presented in the podcast are those of the guest speakers. They do not purport to reflect the opinions or views of the UNOCT, the United Nations, or any of its affiliated organizations. For more information, visit our website, un.org forward slash counterterrorism. And you can follow us on Twitter using the handle at UN underscore OCT.